Exodus 1, 8 through 22. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Before I start, I just want to acknowledge this is the first Sunday since our, uh, the death of our brother, Paul, and, and Paul's going to be missed. And I just want to thank everyone who came together yesterday to, to honor his life, to, to make this possible. I just think that's, as a, as a community of Jesus followers, I just think that's so important for us to gather together at the time of death to, to support each other. So thank you, and man, we'll miss Paul. I even since yesterday, I just keep hearing stories about Paul. Some of them are really funny quips, so going to miss him for many reasons. All right, last week we spent some time getting our bearings in, uh, in this big story of the Bible and in, the, uh, in particular the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And this week we're going to actually start getting into the story of the Exodus. And this is, this is kind of episode one of the book of Exodus. And if I could rename my sermon title, I would call it Two Fears. Two Fears. Because I believe in this passage... We, are, we see and we're taught about two very different types of fear. The fear of Pharaoh and the fear of Shifra and Pua. But before we do that, before we get into the two types of fears, we're going to have to do a little bit of work to, to understand this passage. Because um, for many of us, I include myself, when I get to this story, I tend to see it with the eyes of like my eight-year-old self at at South National Church of Christ in, in Southwest Missouri. I see it, I, it's a kid's story to me. This is, this is no kid's story. Like if, this, if this story uh, you know, had a rating, it would be, it'd be R. Like if we were on Disney Plus uh, last week, we have moved to like HBO 
this week. I don't actually know really much about HBO. I remember as a kid, though, like, we didn't have it. But, like, whatever happened on HBO, like, seemed to be late at night, like, when the kids were, were in bed. So, anyway, this is, this is a dark and brutal story. That's my point. It's not a kid's story. It's not a sanitized kid's story. This is about a story about like, brutal oppression and, and physical, um, through physical labor. It's about infanticide, the, the killing of, of babies. And I, I thank God that this is not a sanitized kid's story. And I, I touched on this before, but I thank God because that would not reflect the reality of this world. The, the phrase that kept popping in my head as I was working on this sermon was, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But we also need to hear this episode of the big story of Exodus because uh, if we're going to recognize uh, what, the, what the, that the Israelites were delivered to and how, how, how incredible this deliverance was, we're going to have to recognize what they were delivered from. And this is bad, right? They are saved from some very bad circumstances. So episode one, two fears. The first fear in our story is the fear of Pharaoh. What is Pharaoh afraid of? Well, look at verse 9. I'll read it again. Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So Pharaoh, we, we've had quite a span of time that's passed since Joseph uh, and his descendants, but this time has passed, and now Pharaoh is afraid of the descendants of Joseph. At one point, hundreds of years ago, but not that far back in our Bibles in Genesis, uh, the Israelites, these Hebrew people, were seen as assets to the country of Egypt. But now they are seen as a threat to the country. And there's something we need to recognize about Pharaoh's fear. Pharaoh's fear is manufactured. As Waldemar Jansen points out, uh, there's nothing in the text here to indicate that the Israelites have been rebelling against the Egyptian government. Okay, we hear nothing about problems that the Israelites are causing uh, right here. The fear that Pharaoh has is that the Israelites are going to join Egypt's enemies and go to war with Egypt. But from what we can tell, this is completely hypothetical. It's made up. So here's what I want you to see about Pharaoh's fear. Pharaoh is fearful of, uh, he's spreading fear, but Pharaoh is spinning fear. Pharaoh is manufacturing fear. And what, what's Pharaoh going to do with that, 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 that fear that he spun? Well, as so often happens when politicians and leaders do that, it's going to lead to oppression. Pharaoh then, uh, we read in our story, puts slave masters over the Israelites. Why does Pharaoh do this? Well, for one, he probably thinks this is going to break their spirit. He thinks, you know, these Israelites, they're going to think about maybe going to war with us. I'm going to make them think twice. I'm going to crush their spirit. He also gets this really cheap labor for these big, big, big um, building projects. But look what happens. The, the, the more the Israelites are oppressed, the more they multiply and spread. So you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, after this happened, uh, the Israelites, they, they would have been reading this story in the Exodus. And somebody, most likely, would have been read out loud, okay? It would have had a narrator. They'd been listening to it orally. And, and, um, and Christopher Wright, he imagines when they, when they came to this line in the story of the Exodus, they would have broken out into cheers. They would have started applauding. Why? Because here's almighty Pharaoh in this story of their people. He's got all the power. 
And he's trying to suppress these underdog Israelites. But what happens when Pharaoh does that? The exact opposite. Rather than suppressing the population, the Israelites are expanding. They're growing like crazy. But just as quickly, our story turns dark. Verse 12, so the Egyptians came, uh, came to dread the, the Israelites. This word dread can also mean loathe. Okay? The Egyptian people, they begin to loathe the Israelites. Notice how this fear and loathing of the Israelites, these, these foreigners, trickles down from the ruler on top, Pharaoh, down to the people. At first, it's just Pharaoh spinning his fears. You know, the slave masters, then they're brought into this oppression. And now we're seeing this fear spread throughout the population. And the Egyptians now begin to turn on the Israelites. They, they begin to work them ruthlessly. They made their lives, the text says, bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar. And with all kind of work in the fields and harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So when, I don't know about you, when I think of bricks, uh, I think of like manufactured bricks that come from a, a brickyard that's huge and everything's automated. But uh, around the world today, even today, many, many people make bricks by hand. And Abella would be able to speak to this better than I could. But, but this happens in Benin right now. And, and I've seen it. Brick making is not easy work. <laughs> He's shaking his head. He knows. It is hot. It's dirty. It's physical. And here these Israelites, they're, they're making bricks for these massive projects, these, these projects that would have required millions of bricks. Okay, so here we have foreigners, immigrants, within the borders of a superpower doing two types of work, making bricks and working out in the fields. The Israelites are doing some of the most physically demanding jobs in the country, and I'm, I'm guessing they're doing jobs that the Egyptians would rather not do. What are those jobs? Construction and agriculture. Does that sound familiar? Immigrants being employed in the construction and agricultural sector doing jobs that the broader population doesn't want to do. I've never worked in construction. I've run a farm before. And on that farm, much of the labor was still done by hand, including picking our fruit. And guess where almost all our hired pickers for our strawberries and blueberries came from? Europe? Canada, Central America. Now, I've picked a lot of strawberries in my day. Some of you might have as kids. And when I first started picking strawberries, I was like in my late 20s. And man, I, I, was, I felt like I was a good strawberry picker. I was strong. I would pick those flats. I would work fast. By the time I was in my mid-30s, mid I was still picking strawberries. But my back was telling me, you cannot keep doing this. You cannot do this kind of work for the rest of your life. And I would feel, feel a bit sorry for myself, but, you know, look around. I was still out there picking. And then I'd see one of our hired pickers, and he'd be in his 60s, and he was just trucking along. It's why almost all the people today in our country that pick fruit are immigrants. It's hard, back-breaking work. Most people don't want to do that kind of work. Look at the language in the text that's used to describe this work. Oppress. Worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter, harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. This word oppress, as one commentator put it, it lacks some of the, the, the intensity of the Hebrew word. In Hebrew, this form is like crush, press down, humiliate. The Israelites, listen to this, the Israelites never forgot how brutal this was. 
They never forgot how humiliating and how crushing enslavement in Egypt was. It was like, it was like this time slavery was burned on their psyche and their consciousness. As Krishna mentioned, this is Black History Month, and in addition to recognizing the accomplishments of black Americans, it's a time we recognize the struggle of black Americans. And one of those struggles is, of course, the enslavement in our country. And sometimes you'll hear someone say, you know, man, slavery was like 150 years ago it ended. Like, why are we still talking about this? And there's, there's many responses to that, but I just want to point out one today. 150 years is nothing. My, the house I live in is older than 150 years. This congregation had been around like 50 years by the time uh, slavery was abolished. Right up until the 1960s, so <laughs> you guys were mostly born, <laughs> there were still known survivors who were born into legalized slavery or enslaved prior to when it was abolished. Isn't that amazing? When you were born, there were still slaves alive. 150 years is nothing. And, and, and for the Israelites and the biblical writers, the brutality of enslavement, like I said, was burned into their consciousness. Uh, Stephen, you guys probably know the story of Stephen in the book of Acts. He's the, the first martyr. Uh, he, he has this big, long speech, and then he's stoned to death. In that speech, he notes how, how the Israelites were, were dealt with treacherously in Egypt. You know how much time had passed between the enslavement of the Israelites and that speech? Over a thousand years. Over a thousand years, and Stephen is still bringing this up. I, I say that because I, I think some of us, and I include myself, we need to, mem- we need to understand why the, the memory of enslavement is still so potent. Why backbreaking labor and oppression still is so potent for so many people in our country that are African Americans. We need to remember these struggles. This is a month for us to remember these struggles. 150 years is nothing. Let's return to Pharaoh's fear because Pharaoh, well, what's Pharaoh doing? Pharaoh's doing what Pharaohs do so often then and now. They might not be called Pharaohs, but how many leaders and tyrants and politicians have totally stolen this out of Pharaoh's playbook? Blame the immigrants. Stoke fears about immigrants and foreigners within our borders. Get the population riled up. Use fear of the outsider as a tool of political persuasion, and then that turns to oppression. Let me just give you a few examples just in the last hundred years. In the Soviet Union under Stalin, a huge number of German-speaking people, many of them Mennonites, were taken from Ukraine and shipped off to concentration camps in Siberia. Why did that happen? Because they were ethnically German. During World War II, people of Japanese descent, including U.S. citizens, were shipped from the West Coast in California and incarcerated in internment camps. Why did that happen? Because they were of Japanese descent. After 9-11, over 1,000 South Asian Arab men were rounded up uh, in the New York City area and detained for months. Many of them were deported home. Why did that happen? Because of where they came from. We have seen this play over and over again throughout history. I'm telling you, like, there's the, everybody must read the story because all these people read the story and they use the same playbook. In our, in our country today, these tactics are still used by politicians and leaders, inciting uh, fear against the immigrants of our country to stir up the population and to garner votes and to further an agenda. Like, stoking fears like Pharaoh did that immigrants are becoming so numerous that they're going to they're gonna pose a threat to our country. And guess what? By the end of Exodus, by the end of the story in Exodus, 
things have gotten really bad. Because Pharaoh's oppressive labor and enslavement of the Israelites it doesn't achieve what he wants, and so he turns to the final solution, which is to kill all the male infants. A task that now is then handed down to all of Pharaoh's people. By the time we get to the end of this passage, we should, if we've done the work, be gasping. A chill should run down our backs when we read that line. We have utterly spiraled in our story. We have gone from fear to slavery to brutal force to genocide. What, are we, what can we learn from this? Let me offer one thing. I think we need, uh, as far as Jesus, we need radars out that once we start hearing leaders and politicians talk like Pharaoh, once we hear like language, not like constructive language about, uh, about com complex policies, language that's so often the case, drumming up fear about immigrants are going to be the end of our country and they're a threat and all this stuff. Whenever we hear that language, we, our radar should go off and we should think, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've heard this kind of language before. Where have I heard this kind of language before? I've heard it from Pharaoh. And we, we, we as followers of Jesus, we need to recognize this language is dangerous and this language is contagious. I, I do not, I don't think I have to make a hard case for you. This is dangerous language and this is contagious language and this will, language will take us to dark places. And as followers of Jesus, I speak to myself here, we need to stand up against this. We, we cannot accept this. This language is not acceptable to us as disciples of Jesus. Okay, that's the first thing. Have your radar out. When you hear that language, wherever it's coming from, think, where have I heard that before? Okay, secondly, uh, notice, uh, this is so brilliant, but notice how Pharaoh's fear at first, uh, it's manufactured, okay? It's not really real. He's afraid, but he's just been in fear. He imagines that this, this enemy is coming to pass and they're going to they're gonna take over the country, but that's not happening. But as Jansen points out, an enemy does, in fact, rise up against Pharaoh. It's not the Israelites, though. Uh, this is so good by Jansen. Let me say this again. An enemy is, in fact, going to rise up against Pharaoh, but it is not the Israelites. Who is the enemy that will rise up against Pharaoh? It's Yahweh. At the beginning of our passage, Pharaoh thinks he's being really shrewd by oppressing the Israelites. But now... Pharaoh is looking like a fool because without even realizing, he has picked a fight with Yahweh. And in the words of Mr. T, I pity the fool. I pity the fool who picks a fight with Yahweh. I pity the fool who aligns himself against the Israelites because that fool is aligning himself against God himself. And think about it. If God is aligning himself with the oppressed, with the marginalized, with the foreigner, with the powerless, with the slaves, here in this passage, and we see this again and again in the Bible, and if there are large swaths of humanity today that are still in these conditions, Christopher Wright, commentary on Exodus, asked this question, are we concerned? Are we concerned about what's happening in the world right now? Are we moved? Do we feel compassion? Do we hunger and thirst for justice, as Jesus said? If not, Wright says, we have not aligned ourselves with the God of Hebrew, the Hebrews. Let me say that again. If we don't, we, we are not aligning ourselves with the God of the Hebrews. And that, man, that, that thought hit me. That's a sobering thought. Right? I've said this before. Whatever 
whatever hard word you're hearing from me right now, it cut me first. Okay, and that, that word cut me because I don't want to be aligned against Yahweh. Again, I pity the fool who's aligned against Yahweh. So that's the first fear, okay? That's the first fear we see in our passage, the fear of Pharaoh, a manufactured fear that leads down a dark, dark path. But we got two fears. We got two fears today in today's episode. We got a second fear of Shifra and Pua. Why doesn't anybody name their kids Shifra and Pua? These women are awesome. So who are these women? Well, we know they're midwives to the Hebrew women, and we know Pharaoh has enlisted them in this this state-sponsored plan to murder all these Hebrew boys. Uh, And the midwives have been told uh, when the Hebrew women are about to give birth on the, on the stool, this, uh, you see it's a boy, kill it, right? And, and in a way, this, this, this has a, the, by killing the boys, you're eliminating potential warriors and rebels, and you're, uh, but you're leaving the girls, which who then can become wives of the Egyptians, and then they will, they will increase the population of the Egyptians. So Pharaoh's instructed them to do, think about this as a midwife, I've, I've our children were born to midwives. This is the exact opposite of what a midwife is, her vocation or his, what her vocation is to, to do. Like he, he's asking midwives to become murderers. And they refuse. They defy Pharaoh's orders. And, and Pharaoh summons them back. He says, you know, why have you done this? Why have you, why have you let the boys live? And they respond, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So, so we've had like a moment, like going back to Wright's observation, we've had a moment of like cheering in the story, and then we've had like this dark, like hopefully chilling moment. Like Wright says, like this should be like the humorous moment. This is like when the Israelites are reading this and they're like, they start laughing because, because um, you know, Pharaoh buys this story. He believes it. Pharaoh, you know, again, he, he sets out to act shrewdly but now, he, again, he looks like the fool because he believes what these women tell him. The king of Egypt has been outsmarted by these plucky, defiant midwives. As Kelly Nikondia says, Pharaoh underestimated these women. Let the girls live would be the beginning of Pharaoh's downfall. Pharaoh underestimated women. This is, we'll see this in the first few chapters of Exodus, all these women arise. Like, Don't underestimate women in the book of Exodus. And what we have here is we have these two midwives who are, are acting, have acts of civil disobedience. You know, imagine, imagine the courage it must have taken by these women to, to step out and take this risk to defy Pharaoh. Like, think about it. What is it that gave them the courage to do this? Well, it's fear. But it's the right kind of fear. It's not this manufactured, xenophobic kind of fear of Pharaoh. It's the fear of God. And these women are honored for having that kind of fear. If you look... It's interesting, if you look at the passage, Pharaoh doesn't get a name. King of Egypt, Pharaoh. Slave masters, they don't get names. Nobody gets named in this little story except for these two women. These two women who, through their actions, save countless Hebrew boys. You know, if it, it, I said this, this Bible's amazing because it reflects so well the reality of the world. If you put a mirror to Pharaoh... It reflects the evil and injustice of our world today. But if you put a mirror to Shifra and Pua, it holds up a mirror to the courage that's still found in our world today uh, to stand out in defiance in the face of injustice. On December 1st, 1955, 
And around 6 p.m., after working all day, Rosa Parks, in an act of her own civil dis disobedience, rejected the bus driver's order to vacate her seat so that some white passengers who were standing could sit. And Parks, uh, she recalls later, I think in her autobiography, the driver said to her, why don't you stand up? Parks says, I don't think I should have to stand up. And seeing that she was still sitting, the driver asked Parks if she was going to stand up. And she said, no, I'm not. Said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and have you arrested. And Parks said, you may do that. We know, most of us, all of us know this story defines because it became a symbol of the civil rights movement. It helped lead to the Montgomery bus boycott. It was a foundational event in the civil rights movement. What's perhaps a little bit less known was that uh, by this point, Parks had been active with the civil rights movement for over a decade. She had recently attended Highlander Folk School, a center for training activities for workers' rights and racial equality. In other words, Parks had been trained, and she'd been preparing for this moment for many, many years. In her autobiography, she writes this. People always say that I didn't give up my seat because people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not physically tired. I was not tired physically, or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have an image of me being old then. I was 42, my age. Listen to this. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving. Like Shifra and Pua, whose names are honored because of their acts of defiance, Park's name is now honored around the world for her own act of defiance. When she died, she became the first woman to lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. But maybe something you also don't notice is it, it, Park's act of defiance was costly to her. She was fired from her job as a seamstress. Her husband was a barber at, a, at the local Air Force base. He lost his job. She, re she received death threats for years afterwards. Def this is usually the case. Defiance against authorities is usually costly. That's usually the case. Let me tell you another story. You, some of you are going to be familiar with the story because of, of our study of this story last uh, year in our Sunday school class. The story of the village of Le Chambon. This is a story of defiance. It's a story of, of the pastor André Trocmé and his wife Magda and the village of Le Chambon is a small village in France that uh, along with the other nearby villages during World War II, they provided refuge for about 5,000 refugees, about 3,500 of them were Jewish refugees who were fleeing Nazi persecution. So the villagers are in this little small rural area, you know, in some ways many, similar to our area in many ways, um, they provided these refugees food and shelter. They made fake identity paper for them. Uh, they hid them during police raids. And in doing so, they defied the Vichy government, so the French government at the time. And they did so at great risk to themselves. And, and one of the parts, you know, as you, I read a bunch of commentaries on, on this story. And one of the parts of uh, the story of Shifra and Pua that, that tend to make people a bit uncomfortable is that, is that they lied to Pharaoh, right? which is breaking a commandment that's, that's in the book of Exodus, right? And, and you can see, like, there's lots of people have struggled with this. What do we do with this? But I think in, in her book, Love in a Time of Hate, which is a book about uh, this story of Le Chambon, Hannah Schott asked the question. So she's thinking now about Andre Trocmé and the same kind of question. How does a Protestant preacher raised by the strictest of principles teach his congregation to lie, or at least to remain silent about the truth? How does one teach deception to faithful churchgoers and eager students of Scripture to people who teach their children by being good examples? Right? These, these people in Shabon, they were serious about Scripture. 
have a public reading usually twice a day in their house of the Scripture. How do you, how do you get these people to lie? And, and, and what, what Hannah Shaw talks about, they took the Bible very seriously. They went back to Scripture to find out how Scripture would inform what they should do with these refugees. And what they saw, interestingly, in the Ten Commandments was the commandment, actually doesn't say you should not, not lying. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And they, they started thinking, well, what about bearing false witness for your neighbor? What, what, about, what does that mean when we lie for the sake of our neighbor? Like, this is a complicated question. <clears throat> but what we saw was them working this out, informed by Scripture, in the context of community. Uh, they also went back to uh, some texts that you might not be surprised about, but favorite text of Trogme, the story of the Good Samaritan with its decisive question of who is my neighbor. Uh, they went to the Sermon on the Mount. But they also, interestingly, studied passages in the Old Testament which speak about cities of refuge. And, and Trocme and his congregation began to realize that if they were going to make Le Chambon a city of refuge for refugees, they would have to answer to God for everything that happened there. Okay, the, 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 the Chambon, the villagers, they were put in this impossible situation like Shifra and Pua. They were given orders by the authorities that if they defied those, could cost their lives. They went back to Scripture, and they realized they had to act to protect these Jewish refugees, even if that meant lying, even if that meant costing them. In other words, Le Chambon, they had the right kind of fear. They had the fear of God. There's, there's two types of fear in our story. And there's two types of fear that were happening in Vichy, France. There was the manufactured xenophobic fear of the Nazis, which we know eventually led to genocide. But there was also the fear of the villages of Le Chambon who refused to give in to that kind of fear because they had the right kind of fear. They had the fear of God. They knew that one day they were going to have to answer to God. What type of fear, brothers and sisters, will we have here at Midway Midnight? Will we have the fear of Pharaoh or will we have the fear of Shifra and Pua? Because the fear of Pharaoh is all around us it rings out from the radio. It rings out from the television. It rings out on social media. It tells us to be fearful of the other. It tells us to be fearful of the foreigner and the immigrant. It tells us to be fearful of people who look and act differently than us. It, te it tells us to be fearful of those who don't share our political beliefs. That, my friends, is the fear of Pharaoh. But there's another fear. There's the fear of Shifra and Pua, the two women who chose to stand up to Pharaoh. And that is the right kind of fear, and that should be our fear. It's a fear that recognizes that we are ultimately accountable to God. It is a fear that, that, that prompts us to step out and act, even if it's not popular, and even when it becomes costly, like Rosa Parks, Andre Trachme, the village of Le Chambon, Shifra, and Pua. See, not only is it that important that we fight against injustice, but just as important, we need to remember as followers of Jesus why we stand up to injustice. We stand up because it flows out of our fear of God, out of looking to God for guidance on how to act in a given situation. Sometimes it's easy to drift away from that. Sometimes it's, it's easy to just work for justice, which is good, but work for it outside of our faith. We need to know what is behind our work for justice, behind our hunger and thirst for justice. is because that is what God hungers for. It's because that's what God wants his people to hungry for and to stand up for. 
Because as, as followers of Jesus, we serve a God who again and again in the Bible aligns himself with the marginalized, with the oppressed. And as followers of Jesus, our defiance is not just defiance for the sake of defiance. It is defiance informed by the fear of God. A fear of, that recognizes there will be moments in our discipleship journey where we must take a stand. where We must join with Peter in saying we must obey God and not man. We're like Parks and Shifra and Pua and so many others. We must refuse. And we must not just wait for that moment to decide what to do. We must do what Rosa Parks do. We must do what the, the village of Le Chambon do. We must prepare ourselves for those moments. As Pierre Sauvage remarked in his documentary on the village of Le Chambon, this is a, a comment that has always stuck with me since I did a paper on this. Sauvage, after studying everything that happened in Le Chambon, he said this. Interesting story. He was born there to Jewish refugees. He said he had come to believe that people who agonize don't act. And people who act don't agonize. We must, as a congregation, as followers of Jesus, prepare ourselves through prayer, through spiritual formation, through study of Scripture, that we might have the right kind of fear. And that we, if the moment comes like Shifra and Pua or Rosa Parks or the villagers of Le Chabon, we will not agonize, but we will act. God help us to do that. 